Welcome to the Beacon Church Podcast. Each week we post a sermon from our last Sunday service so you can catch up, review, or share with your friends. We pray as you listen to this week's episode, you're encouraged and equipped to love God, love people, grow in Christ, and serve the world. Good morning, Beacon. So good to be with you. We're in our Advent series that Robert kicked off last week last Sunday, and the title of today's message is Beholding His Glory. And we're going to read our passage today from 2 Corinthians 3. It's one of the devotional passages that you're going to be reading this week in the booklet that you should have gotten last week if you were here. If you weren't here last week, they're somewhere in the building because I saw them last night in the office. So I, I, I think Logan is working on putting them out in the lobby. They're purple. They're They kind of look like this thematically, so please, if you didn't grab one last week or if you weren't here on your way out, grab one and join us in this Advent devotional for the rest of the month. Let's read 2 Corinthians 3, starting in verse 16. But when one turns to the Lord, the veil is removed. Now the Lord is the Spirit, and where the Spirit of the Lord is, there is freedom. And we all, with unveiled face, beholding the glory of the Lord, are being transformed into the same image from one degree of glory to another. For this comes from the Lord, who is the Spirit. Amen. This past week, I'm putting dinner down on the table. I do all the cooking in the house, most of it. I'm in the middle of doing this, and my daughter, Luca, who's 14, just out of the blue, looks at me and she says, Appa. Does God have a personality? Like out of the blue. And I'm thinking to myself, okay, James, don't screw this up. Because you don't get too many of these before she turns 18. You know, I got to be honest, I got nervous. I was like, she, like she caught me. I got nervous. And so I stalled for time. I said, so what do you mean by personality exactly? And she came right back. She's like, well, does he have any quirks? I'm like, dang, you're quick. Okay, that's a good question, too, and, and, and I'm thinking, I'm thinking, you know, I'm telling you, kids are capable of good theology, and all three of my kids have proven this to me over the years, and, and so we talk about it just a few minutes, and, and then she gets distracted, and the moment passes, and it's precious, but in the wake of that, I'm reflecting on these questions that this 14-year-old who lives in my house is asking me, deep theological questions, and I believe, and I start to see that there are questions behind the questions. And I believe the heart is asking this question. Can I actually have a personal relationship with God? And if so, how deep can it go? I think that's the question that she was asking. And I believe there are several longings of the heart that are installed in each and every human being when we're born whether we're aware of them or not, but I believe the greatest longing, the deepest longing that everyone sitting in this room has right now is the longing to enjoy God and to be enjoyed by God forever and ever. That is the deepest longing of the human heart, to enjoy God and to be enjoyed by God. And I'm hearing echoes of that longing in her questions. And today, as we're turning to this text, this devotional text for this week, I believe these are the questions that are being addressed 
by the Apostle Paul, the author of, of this letter to the Corinthians. What does it look like to have a personal relationship with God? So starting in verse 16, he writes to them, but when one turns to the Lord, the veil is removed. Now, what is the veil here exactly? I want to, this is a crucial bit uh, to understand, so I want to spend a little time looking at this. Paul is talking here, when he talks about the veil, he's talking about Exodus 34. And just to give you a little context, Moses, he wore an actual veil, a, a fabric veil over his face. And, and why he's doing this is because God had just brought the Israelites out of Egypt. We've all seen the movie, we've read the story. Out of 400 years of slavery in Egypt, he leads the people through the desert to Mount Sinai. He gives them the law through Moses on the mountain, on Mount Sinai, which is essentially, and I've, I've shared this before, it's an es essentially a marriage contract, the Decalogue and the laws. But the people are unfaithful in the process of Moses receiving that first set of tablets. Moses is on Mount Sinai. He comes down and he sees the people. What have they done? They fashioned a golden calf out of their gold. And they're worshiping and they're playing, the text says. And Moses sees this abomination. He smashes the tablets out of frustration. He deals with the Israelites. 3,000 of them die. And then he goes back up the mountain again to receive another pair of tablets. And he's up there for 40 days. No food or water, it says. But in that time, he asks God a really interesting thing. He says, God, show me your glory. Show me your glory, he says. And God says this to Moses. He says, I will make all my goodness, the Lord says, pass before you, and I will proclaim my name before you. It says that in Exodus 33. And then the very next chapter, Exodus 34, it says, the Lord passed before him, before Moses, and proclaimed, the Lord, the Lord God, merciful and gracious, long-suffering, and abounding in goodness and truth. And this is how I read this. This is how I understand that. That God's glory, remember Moses asked for the glory, to, to see the glory, and so God shows him. God's glory is not only his power and his wisdom, which he's already displayed, but it's also his emotions and his personality. He says, I'm going to make my name Pass before you, the Lord, the Lord God, merciful, gracious, long-suffering, abounding in goodness and truth. And so Moses then has this experience before the glory of God. He comes down, and now his face is literally shining with the glory of God, having been in God's presence. Then Exodus 34, 30 says this, Aaron and all the people of Israel saw Moses and behold, the skin of his face shone, and they were afraid to come near him. Some people think, no, it's because Moses was, was ashamed that the glory was fading. No, that's not what it's talking about. Moses wears the veil over his face to keep the Israelites from fearing for their lives at the presence of God's glory reflected in his face. They knew instantly when they saw his face that they were sinful, unrighteous people. They were instantly aware of their sinfulness. And Aaron and the leaders of Israel out there in the Sinai desert knew that they would die if they continued to stare 
to look at the glory of God in Moses' face. And so Moses wears this veil to protect the people. And I think a better word there actually is to separate the people from God's glory. Does that make sense? But Paul says earlier in this chapter, he says the covenant of the law, he calls it the ministry of death. We're talking about the law that he received. This is the contract. Mediated through Moses, Paul says, the glory connected to this law, it was coming to an end. He says this in verse 7. Now, if the ministry of death, meaning the, the, the covenant of, 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 of the law, carved in letters on stone, came with such glory that the Israelites could not gaze at Moses' face because of his glory, which was being brought to an end, will not the ministry of the Spirit have even more glory? There was to be an even greater glory with the ministry of the Spirit, the glory of a new covenant. But the question is, how could an even greater glory be survived by sinful people? That's the question, Paul. How, if there's an even greater glory coming with the, with, with, with the new covenant, how could we, sinful people, survive this glory? I want to take us to Hebrews 10. Because the author of Hebrews answers that question for us in a beautiful way. He ties all of these ideas that we just went through together. Hang with me here just as we read through Hebrews 10, starting in verse 1. For since the law... All that we've been talking about now, the contract, the marriage contract. You do this, Israel, I'll be this for you. You'll be my people. For since the law has but a shadow of the good things to come, instead of the true form of these realities, it can never, by the same sacrifices that are continually offered every year, make perfect those who draw near. It was doomed from the beginning, in other words. Verse 5, we're skipping. Verse 5, consequently, when Christ came into the world... He said, sacrifices and offerings you have not desired, but a body you have prepared for me. This is Jesus talking to the Father. But a body you have prepared for me. In burnt offerings and sin offerings you have taken no pleasure. Then I said, behold, I have come to do your will, O God. O Father, you might hear him say, as it is written of me in the scroll of the book. In other words, the prophets, they had been writing about him. Verse 10 and by that we will have been sanctified, you and I, be sanctified through the offering of the body of Jesus Christ once for all. For by a single offering he has perfected for all time those who are being sanctified. And the Holy Spirit also bears witness to us for after saying, this is the covenant I will make with them. This is the new covenant. After those days, declares the Lord, I will put my laws not on stone tablets but on their hearts and I will write them on their minds. And then he adds, I will remember their sins and their lawless deeds no more. That's Jeremiah 31 that he's quoting. Where there is forgiveness of these, there is no longer any offering for sin. Therefore, brothers, now this is, this is good. Therefore, brothers, since we have confidence to enter the holy places by the blood of Jesus, by the new and living way, excuse me, that he opened for us through the veil, that is through his flesh. 
And since we have a great priest over the house of God, let us draw near with the true, that the Greek word there, it actually means with the real heart, not a true as in you're not lying anymore. It means what the heart that you carry, your real heart, you can draw near with that heart in full assurance of faith with our hearts sprinkled clean from an evil conscience and our bodies washed with pure water. <clears throat> Let us hold fast the confession of our hope without wavering for he who promised is faithful. That is good news. In other words, Jesus removes the veil as the greater Moses. In fact, the author of Hebrews, he says here, he opened the way through the veil, tearing it in two, right? Remember when he's crucified, the veil in the temple, it gets torn in two. He tears that veil by tearing his own flesh on the cross. And we are washed in the blood of that flesh, that torn flesh, the ultimate in perfect sacrifice, we are made clean and holy, righteous, and now we can enter in to the fullness of his presence, into the fullness of the greater glory and not die. That's a good thing. We're not going to die. In other words, we are through Jesus brought into the very presence of God. What the law could never, ever do, Jesus did for you and me. That is why he came. That's why we're lighting these candles. That's why we're talking about joy. So that we can be in a confident and intimate and personal relationship with him. To enjoy him and to be enjoyed by him forever and ever. That was God's heart from the beginning. So Paul continues. He continues in verse 16 of our original passage in 2 Corinthians. But when one turns to the Lord, Paul says, the veil is removed. Now the Lord is a spirit, and where the spirit of the Lord is, there is freedom. And we all with unveiled face, beholding the glory of the Lord, are being transformed into the same image from one degree of glory to another. For this comes from the Lord who is the spirit and so now we, beloved, who live in the light of this amazing, incredible gospel reality, we have one vocation that, is, that, is, that, is, that rises above all others, according to Paul, and it's this. It's to draw near to God and to behold his glory, to behold his beauty. And when I think about beholding the glory and beauty and emotions of God. Two people come to mind in the Bible more than anyone else. The first is King David, and, and this is what King David writes in, in Psalm 27.4. This is one of my favorite verses in the entire Bible. He writes, one thing, one thing have I asked of the Lord that I will seek after, that I may dwell in the house of the Lord all the days of my life to gaze upon the beauty of the Lord. And to inquire in his temple. And it's important to note that this meditation it, it, of David, it doesn't come in the middle of a psalm. You might think, you might wonder if you're not familiar with the psalm. It, might, it, it doesn't come in the middle of a psalm where he's meditating with the guitar in his hand on the beauty of God or the, or the glory of the temple. 
No, this is this is this psalm is actually a meditation on being attacked viciously by his enemies. He's in the middle of running for his life. And just the verse prior, this is what he writes. He writes, Though an army encamp against me, my heart shall not fear. Though war rise against me, yet I will be confident. And then he writes, very next verse, One thing have I asked of the Lord, that he would save my life. No, that I will seek after, that I may dwell in the house of the Lord all the days of my life. To gaze upon the beauty of the Lord and to inquire in his temple. And it's like, what happened, David? You were, you're being hunted like an animal. Your war is rising against you. And all of a sudden, you're talking about gazing on the beauty and the glory of the Lord. And I think David is saying to us, yes, in fact, drawing near to God to gaze on and behold his beauty, to, to behold his emotions, is how you and I, is how we wage war against the enemy, to behold his personality, his goodness, his kindness, his mercy. David, in other words, is teaching us in this moment how to respond to the difficulties and the storms in our lives as those who trust in God. He says, gaze on him. That's King David, who with the, uh, the exception of Jesus have more pages in the Bible devoted to him than anyone else. I said there are two people that come to mind when I think about beholding God's glory. So David's the first. The second person, on the other hand, is only mentioned three times in all of Scripture. And every time we see, we see her, she is at the feet of Jesus. And that person is Mary of Bethany, sister to Martha and Lazarus. And I want to just take the remainder of our time here to look at these three moments that we, we see Mary, because they are together, in my opinion, a master class on beholding the glory and beauty of God. The first moment we meet her, she's, what I would say is she's listening at his feet. She's listening at his feet, and, and many of us know the story. It's Luke 10. Jesus is in the home of Mary and Martha. And many of us, you know, we know the story well. Jesus is the guest of honor. And, and, and Martha is busy with the preparations for her guest. And she's just doing what she's supposed to be doing. Sometimes we forget that in, in telling the story. She's doing what she's supposed to be doing. But where's Mary? She's at the feet of Jesus. Turned to the Lord, taking it all in. She's listening. She's gazing. She's beholding. And this is an unusual place for a woman to be in that culture. But there she is. And so Martha complains in verse 40. She says, Lord, do you not care? This is Luke 10, verse 40. Lord, do you not care that my sister has left me to serve alone? Tell her then to help me. But the Lord answered her, Martha, Martha, you are anxious and troubled about many things. And he says this, but one thing is necessary. And I believe Jesus had David's psalm in his mind when, he, when he's saying this to Martha. One thing is necessary. Mary has chosen the good portion which will not be taken away from her. And Martha is in one sense justified in being upset with Mary. But Jesus is saying to her, Martha, intimacy with me will never take a back seat to serving me. 
Serving God is good. It's necessary, absolutely. Otherwise, this couldn't happen. But, but it must flow, Jesus is saying, out of an intimacy with him. Out of having gazed into his affections for us. That's how we protect ourselves from burning out, from resentment and anxiety. We need to see ourselves in his eyes. We need to look at him and see how he looks at us. And let that move and, and change the chemistry of our hearts. Somehow Mary knew this. This was, that this was where she needed to be. Throw convention out the window. I, no, I need to be right here at his feet. You know, I've shared this story before, but when I was a, a young pastor, there were seasons where I couldn't say no to anyone about anything. I just, it, I was a yes man. And I did that because I, I felt like if I didn't say yes, everything would come to a stop, and that could be the absolute worst thing that could happen to the church and to me. And, and, and by the grace of God, he got my attention. I got sick. I eventually burned out, and I had to reassess how I was doing ministry, and that's when the Lord started to talk to me about going deeper going to a deeper place with him. And, and a place of intimacy and relationship that I didn't know existed, I found myself there and it reaffirmed, really reminded me of my identity as a son, that, that I was a son before I was a minister. Ultimately freed me from having to say yes to everything and everyone. I started saying no a lot and it was, felt really weird at first and then I started feeling really good. <clears throat> I still wrestle with it, but spending time gazing on his heart has allowed me to find joy in ministry again. So that's the first moment we see Mary. The second time we see Mary, we see her beholding Jesus. She is weeping at his feet. It's the aftermath of a funeral. Again, you know this story. Mary and Martha have just buried their brother Lazarus. They sent for Jesus when he was first sick, but for some reason he takes his time and he arrives on the scene four days after he's been buried. And when he arrives, it's like a bomb went off. Martha gets to Jesus first and he's like, or she's like, Jesus, if he had been here. And they have a, what kind of, if you read it, it's like a theological discussion. But, but that's it. There's not much else we get from Martha in that moment. But then Mary shows up. And she sees Jesus and immediately falls to his feet. And she cries. If you had been here, he wouldn't have died. Mary's weeping. And the Greek word there for the word weeping, it's, just, it's actually not weeping. She's wailing. She is wailing at Jesus' feet. <clears throat> the first funeral I ever attended was, I remember this like it was yesterday. I was 11 years old. And uh, my friend from church, who was, he was also about 11, lost his mother to a violent stroke. They're an immigrant family. And 
she died suddenly and instantly. His father, sadly, had passed many years before. I never actually had met him. And, and so for several years, it was just him and his mom and his older sister. She was 19 years old. And so now with mom gone, it's just him and the older sister. And I remember at this funeral, it was at a church filled with believers and his sister. And when it came time to close the casket, the sister, she began to cry. But not just cry, she began to wail, like wail. And she ran, I remember that she ran up to the casket and she began to plead with her mom to wake up. That she couldn't leave them, that she needed her, that she couldn't do it on her own. I just remember this. And, and two other people, I remember, they had to come up to her and literally drag her off the casket. And the entire church, you can imagine, just started to weep. Weep over what they were witnessing. But even then, as an 11-year-old, I knew they, they were not weeping just for this daughter. As devastating and as sad as it was, it wasn't just that. The weep, they were weeping. The weeping was because they carried their own losses, maybe only possible because they were acquainted with loss. And I knew this because I also began to cry as an 11-year-old. I began to cry. And this strange feeling, all this sadness inside me started to, like, rush out. It was a physical feeling. I felt it coming out of me, just as real as the floor underneath me. I felt it, and, and I did everything I could to just keep it from rushing. I was, like, pushing it down. Because if I didn't, I'd start wailing. The truth is, we've all experienced loss. Even the 11-year-olds here. And any good Christian counselor will tell you, if you don't grieve your past losses, no matter how deep you bury it, it will rob you of your present and your future. And the part, part of the way we as believers grieve our losses is by bringing them to God and letting him tend to our hearts. That, that's the process. This is the process. And though this may sound strange, I believe grieving is an act of faith. This is what the Christian author Henry Nouwen says. He says, when you grieve, what you're doing is you're actively tearing down any false sense of security and safety that you've built around the pain to help you cope and get through. You know, whether it's rationalizing or minimizing. You know, it wasn't that bad. It's, it's okay. It's going to be all right. Demonizing, demonizing people, groups, straight denial, stonewalling, burying. The list goes on and on and gone. But when you grieve, he says, you're tearing down that false sense of safety and now you're open to feeling the pain, which is why we're terrible at grieving. But at the very same time, when you do that, you're also open to God filling the empty spaces. Does that make sense? There's this little dialogue exchange in the story here. It's John 11:34. Jesus asks, he said, where have you laid him? Where have you laid Lazarus, he's asking. They said to him, Lord, come and see. Now, I know that technically this is just little, this is a little exchange. There's no more than passing dialogue. There's, there's nothing really theologically, in my opinion, that we need to pull out of this. But I wonder if, I, if we could just take this little phrase, Lord, come and see, and use it for ourselves. 
Lord, come and see. Come and see the loss. Come and see the loss of my mom or dad. My friend, my brother, my sister. Come and see the loss of my wife or my husband. Come and see the mess I've made. Come and see the business or come and see the relationship or what's left of it. Come and see the season I'm in. Come and see my child. Come and see this illness. And I believe that is what Mary is doing here. She's allowing the pain of her loss, the disappointment to come before her Lord, her Messiah. She wasn't minimizing it or theologizing it away in that moment. She's bringing her true heart, her real heart. And that heart is devastated by the loss of her brother and the disappointment of Jesus' arrival in the way that he arrived. And, and I believe she could only do this act of faith, really it's an act of faith, because she had a history with him. She had a history with Jesus that let her know that he's good, that he's kind, that he's trustworthy, that he can hold my pain. And through the tears, there's a kind of beholding of the Lord that Mary is showing us here. Even through the tears, even through the wailing, I believe she's beholding him. Does that make sense? There are prayers being prayed through the tears. No words, but tears. You know, Psalm 34 says our tears give voice to our prayers. And there's so much more to this story, obviously. There's a resurrection for the, for the sake of time, I want to move on to the last time we see Mary and Bethany. But let me just say this. I imagine many of us in this room are here in these seats only because of the tears of a mom or a dad. Or a brother or a sister. I know I was dead. Good as, good as dead. But somehow miraculously, the Lord brought me back to life. And I believe my mom's tears have much to do with it. And I think we could say the same for John too. For those of you who know John. The final time we see Mary is, is, is this scene where she's worshiping at his feet. We're again in, in the home and, and she's at Jesus' feet. Again, John 12, 3 says this. Mary took a pound of expensive ointment made from pure nard. In today's money, that would cost about $100,000 to give you a sense of what she's doing here. It's a year's wage or more. And, and anointed the feet of Jesus and wiped his feet with her hair. The house was filled with the fragrance of the perfume. I'm going to invite the, the, the worship team to come up as we, as we finish here. Now, the question I'm going to ask is, who does this? I mean, can you imagine from a rational standpoint, if you know this story, I'm with Judas on this because he complains. He's like, what is she doing? We could have sold this and given it to the poor. I totally get it, Judas. I know where you're coming from because this is, this is ridiculous because she's effectively pouring out her life onto Jesus' feet. It's an extravagant act of worship being poured out of a heart that's been touched, that's been wounded by the love and beauty of her Messiah. When my brother John and I were struggling through COVID, 
with our two little restaurants in the city, this is a couple years back, obviously, we're deeply troubled. Only John, at that point, and his family were attending Beacon. I had never set foot in this place. And yet there was this financial support and prayer support coming our way through their small group. And all I can say is thank God for Esther who decided to join that small group way before John ever did. Esther is John's wife, by the way, in case you didn't know. I still don't get it. But when I think about it, I do. Because to me, it's just evidence of people who have been deeply touched by the love of God, the spirit of God. That kind of generosity and care, and, and I'm looking at you, North Hill Small Group. That's the work of a very personal God. work of a very personal God in your lives, transforming you into his image from one degree of glory to another, as Paul writes. And I have to say, Beacon, you're looking a lot like your father. I want to end our time today by reading Paul's words in 2 Corinthians 3 together, but let's do this. Can we do this? Let's speak it over each other as as a declaration of our inheritance in Jesus. Can we do that? Starting in verse 16. But when one turns to the Lord, the veil is removed. Now the Lord is the Spirit, and where the Spirit of the Lord is, there is freedom. And we all, with unveiled face, beholding the glory of the Lord, are being transformed into the same image from one degree of glory to another. For this comes from the Lord, who is the Spirit. Amen and amen. Father, we thank you for this incredible, incredible reality that you have come to draw us near to you, to be before you, to experience you, and God, to behold your beauty your glory, your personality, and yes, even your emotions. God, I'm asking for us, this this house, this family, that you would teach us to be a people who know how to behold your emotions and to have our hearts, our emotions changed as a result of that. Help us to come before you with real hearts. With the hearts that we have, not the hearts that we think we should have. And to present it before you. To encounter you. To see your eyes on us. Teach us how to do that, God. We want to be at your feet. We want to gaze at your beauty. Teach us how to do that. Transform and change us, God. We need this. We need you. We want to be near you. Give us tears. Give us the gift of tears for our own lives, for the lives of those in our family, in our communities. You're worthy. You're worthy. 
We love you. We thank you for Jesus. We pray this in his powerful name. Amen. If you enjoyed the sermon, want to learn more about Jesus, or get to know our community, please visit beacon.church to get connected. We would love to hear from you.